This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dockett and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Right now, we're talking as a Monday, July 13th, close of the market today. It was pretty wild fluctuations. Uh, we ended up with the Dow up 10 points, ending the day at 26,085. Um, S&P was down slightly by 29 uh, points, um, ending the day 0.94% lower. The VIX was up 17.96%, um, or 4.90 points, ending at 32.19 as a result of some of the wild fluctuations. Really started was Tesla came out with a bang, and we'll talk about Tesla here in a minute. But then we had a series of unfortunate news. Um, California will likely close indoor restaurants, movie theaters, and bars statewide. So they're going back to the beginning. Uh, as of Sunday, cases have grown by 5% or more in 37 states and Washington, D.C. So we are in full flux right now. Uh, many states may be relooking at going back to phase one or shutting down together altogether. So that would put a damper on things. Uh, Grant, any comments on that? Well, we're seeing some of the really densely populated states, Florida, Texas, California, all surging with state with uh, cases. We saw Florida actually, if it was his own country, would be the, the fourth largest number in cases. Uh, really, it, we're, we're going to have to continue to see if if larger economies or larger state economies go back down. Uh, it, it is one thing to note as we did see uh, Tesla go up 16%, rising to new all-time highs, and then uh, falling into negative territory. So talk about a crazy day of trading. Yeah, we, we could spend an entire episode on Tesla within the last week of news. Uh, <laughs> you know, at one point, Elon Musk was wealthier than Warren Buffett, uh, or he surpassed him on Friday. Uh, let, let's look at what shares have done. I mean, on January 2nd, 2020, you know, Tesla was at 430 bucks a share. At one point today, it was, you know, fluctuating roughly around $1,700 a share. So that is, you know, we, we, we've had, you know, a 300% gain, really. Um, I mean, it gave up some points throughout the day, but it's been a wild, wild start of the ride to year to date. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, a big reason is they are on track to join the S&P 500. So a lot of people are pining for that. Um, so that, that might be overriding some of the fundamentals we see. Grant, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I, I do think it's hilarious how Elon Musk continues to combat short sellers and took a very strange tactic last week and uh, started selling a brand of uh, red satin shorts on their websites that were sold at uh, $69.42. Uh, and they sold out immediately. But it, it's interesting because if you look at a pure valuation, Tesla is now the most uh, has the largest market value out of any car company in the world, more than Toyota, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. If you think about the amount of production that they've done, they on average produced last year, I believe it was about uh, 300,000 cars. Whereas if you take a look at Toyota, that was that was 
two million cars. So yeah. significant discrepancy there. Also, Tesla hasn't had a, a annual profit. They've had profitable quarters, but in terms of an overall annual profit, they, they haven't done that. So in order to get that valuation, I, I don't really see it. That is why we've seen that Tesla may become the, the first company to have their stock uh, have 20 billion worth of, of shorts on it, bets against it. Uh, and yet all it does is gone up. So they're really squeezing the short sellers. Uh, say what you will about Elon Musk, Tesla's, they may be, the, they were the first electric car to market and they're reaping some of the rewards. We're seeing that uh, some may see the stock go up to uh, 1500 a share, which is significant growth over the next uh, two to three years. So uh, it'll be interesting to see as other companies come into play if that affects Tesla. But but overall, stock has been continuing to go up. Um, and I think we could see, as you mentioned, that it, since it will be going into the S&P 500, a lot of people are buying up shares right now. And then once ETFs and indices have to pay for the shares to replicate the indices, we may see a lot of money exiting. exiting. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue to see short positions against it. So we'll find out whether they make their way into inclusion in the S&P 500 on July 22nd. It has to have four strike quarters looking at, you know, gap accounting standards. But yeah, I mean, so when you're looking at analysts who were very bullish on Tesla, uh, whether it's Joe Osha from uh, JMP um, Securities, you know, he stated in a recent note to clients that Tesla could have a billion dollars in annual revenue by 2025. And, but even he, um, you know, and, and, you know, he's, people have noted facts that, um, you know, like analysts at Fact Sheet, for example, expected 72,000 vehicle deliveries in the second quarter. Well, you know, Tesla delivered 90,650. But even with these, you know, good fundamentals, Joe, who was kind of the most bullish, you know, had a $1,500 target on Tesla. Well, they blew past that at points today. Uh, you had, you know, and other analysts who, who do like Tesla as a position. Uh, you know, if you look at Colin Rush, who's a managing director and senior research analyst at Oppenheimer, you know, he says that when we're looking at 2024 and 2025, based on what the company's planned out, they see a potential, you know, for 50% to 70% upside. Uh, but their their price target was at 968 a share. So even guys who like Tesla have been kind of blown away on their pricing targets. And it's just been really wild to see. Well, it's all speculative. I mean, there's nothing on the fundamentals, which which maybe because as we've talked about, there's a lot of uh, investors who think Tesla is a sexy stock, and and it is when you think about it. Especially, I wonder if they saw a bump after SpaceX was mm -hmm. was, was successful as well. So overall, it, it'll be interesting to see if they continue to squeeze the short positions because there's a lot of people on the street who are losing a lot of money on this right now, mm -hmm. and. Speaking about losing a lot of money, we, we, we should mention that a lot of these leveraged products, so uh, two to one on the upside, three to one on the upside, or, or inverse ETFs, they have really grown in popularity over the last couple of months uh, because they're, they're giving access to uh, unique financial derivatives, really. They're based on different option packages. Uh, we've seen some speculation on if they sh there should be a little more barriers to entries rather than just going into your brokerage account and trading them. Uh, Drew, what are your thoughts on leveraged ETFs? Should there be more barriers to entry? Uh, can people quickly lose their shirt on these? What's your take? 
Yeah, so I they are they have become more popular, and I think when you're looking at these double barrel, triple barrel, uh, these leverage derivatives, they've become more popular this year in particular because you know we started off with a thirty plus decline, so people look at inverse um, ETFs and they're saying, "Oh my God, the world is collapsing." Uh, so then you know there's there's interest in that, but today we briefly briefly went positive on the S&P 500 just a few short months later. So then on the upside, you know, if you go triple, double barrel, triple barrel, um, you know, two to one, one to one, you might see some potential on that for a bull market too. Uh, And people are, you know, looking to make some money. But the issue is ultimately both types of ETFs tend to reset their holdings daily. Uh, So they're not for long-term investors. And and, and what we saw late last year was the SEC proposed rules that will require leverage and require inverse ETF providers to send out a questionnaire to customers. I think that's a good thing. I think you need to be understanding these products. Um, you see, we've seen horrible things this year, not necessarily on the inverse or leverage side, but that, that kid who, uh, you know, had a Robin. million, Robin, yeah, Robin Hood, he had a million dollar position. And, um, you know, I think he was a Nebraska guy 20 years old or so, and and he ended up committing suicide. So you don't want people to be in a situation where they don't understand their risks and then absolutely lose their shirt because that's going to cause wild financial gain, uh, you know, pain. This is not a play thing, as people have said. Um, and so I do think these questionnaires are good. And, and I think there might be more calls to re-regulate or at least recategorize these because they do not act like traditional ETFs. Yes. Well, that's a great point. Cause when I think of an ETF, I think of a buy and hold passive strategy. And then once you add these leverages, as you said, once they reset daily, uh, you know, people are, people are supposed to have these for short terms, a day, maybe a week. These aren't long-term investments, especially when you think about, uh, marking market each day. So that's one big thing. But also if you think about how they are created, they're effectively an option package wrapped in an ETF. And in order to be able to trade options at most brokerage firms, you need special uh, approval to be in order to do so. And with these levered ETFs, anyone can go in and buy them. So I think there needs to be more education around them, a little more regulation, not to say that uh, we should really hinder the, the barriers to entry. But we have seen, as you mentioned, the, the, the horrible story of that guy, Robin Hood. Uh, and so overall, I, I think you do need to, to add some regulation. Another product line that we saw, we saw Credit Suisse with their uh, ETN, so exchange traded notes. Uh, they are uh, similar to UBS and Citi going to liquidate some of their leveraged commodity ETNs just because of the, the really the big risk involved in them. Uh, but there, there's some significant upside. We saw that Credit Suisse has $1.5 billion. Uh, in a 2x VIX ETN that was up 200% this year. So if you're on the right side of these trades, they can be very profitable. But if you're on the downside, as you said, uh, that can be really significant and crippling, especially if we think about more people with little experience entering the market, especially as we've seen retail investors really begin to to uptick in the last couple months during the recession. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and one, one thing we should, let, let, let's, let's, kind of shift focus and kind of go to fixed income um, going from, you know, a crazy aggressive product to uh, <laughs> uh, something that, you know, um, offers a little bit more stability, especially when people are rethinking what's going to happen to the economy. 
we saw the benchmark on the 10-year treasury uh, fell on, on last Friday to 0.568%. That was the lowest level since April 22nd. Uh, it did go up, um, you know, well, it's, 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 it has kind of, there's, there's been a move um, since then. It's, uh, it's, it's at 0.622%. But um, I mean, you were, you're, you know, you're looking at kind of lows, uh, you know, UK has gone down as well. Um, you know, the US 30 year yield slid to 1.246%. So we're definitely seeing more people move to treasuries as they re-examine the cases of COVID and 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 shutdowns and you know revisions to GDP. So. Well, it's really yeah, as you mentioned, the market is finally reacting to the growing growing infections, and so that's why we're seeing rates fall, especially those longer dated uh, treasuries. So the five to thirty year, we saw that the spread fell to below hundred basis points and, and then recovered. But really, we're seeing that people are starting to hedge the from riskier assets that they find vulnerable. So therefore, they're going to go to those short dated U.S. Treasuries. Uh, and we did see this in March as well. Uh, so it is just a repeat. And I, I really think the main driver is the is the growing, growing infections. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, this is a yin and yang relationship. Um, with you know junk bond ETFs, which did very well earlier on because people were looking for yield desperately, um, but I mean that sense been completely flipped on its head. Yeah, you're getting you're, you're I mean you might be getting less yield, but but you've seen a lot of exiting as people are dumping their riskier holdings, uh, you know, in in favor of you know the safety of of U.S. government debt. Uh, you had you know the other week you had two point six billion dollars. Of people exiting from the junk bond market, um, and and then from the exchange traded funds, and then when we're looking at you know high yield mutual funds, uh, that was in you know another five point six billion. Well, and then you're seeing BlackRock's iShares seven to ten year. They had an inflow of twenty two billion over the past week, uh, up from twenty two compared to the year over year. So significant funds moving out of the junk bond ETFs and into treasuries. And it's really thinking about the fixed income investor. They're reassessing the outlook uh, on bark bond markets. And we saw maybe the reason why a lot of these junk bonds ETFs had such a surge is because we saw the Federal Reserve going on their big uh, asset buying spree over the last couple of months. And now we're seeing that the Fed actually shifted its policy to purchase uh ETNs and individual corporate bonds. So that may actually impact these junk bond ETFs outflows as well. Uh, So what the Fed has done may have actually impacted significantly the the junk bond ETFs. No, I mean, definitely. Kind of going to like a macro gear. uh, We've seen, you know, there's discussion on phase two of China. Um, You know, President Trump stated on Friday that he was not thinking about a possible next stage. Our relations have been significantly damaged since the onslaught of this pandemic. And there really doesn't seem to be much of a rush or interest in either party to get back to the drawing board. So <laughs> no chance. I, I think there's they're both going back and there's we're no longer having the the trade war, the tariff war, but we're seeing back and forth, especially after we we, I think one of the main things is Trump blames China for not having a better handle on 
quarantining and, and stopping this pandemic outbreak as now it's it's affected the U.S. And right now we're uh, we're the one that's really at the brunt of it. But we should also talk about Hong Kong because I think that that's mm-hmm. a huge one. There's a lot of policy talk being in Washington right now. And, and some of the policies is uh, really, really going to affect how we uh, interact with China and Hong Kong, especially because it was the one country uh, two system that now that's completely gone uh, in terms of intellectual property and and th- those I think those are on the back burner. I think Hong Kong is the main thing that that's driving Washington right now. Yeah, you saw the British government and and other governments are willing to accept millions of potential um, you know migrants from that city. Uh, I mean, you're looking at a city that is hyper developed and that has a long history of you know, being part of the, you know, United Kingdom and it's got a lot of British influence. They they haven't had the same restrictions that most people had in mainland China when we're looking at, you know, social media or the right to protest or anything like that. Everything. So <laughs> their their life has flipped radically um, overnight. And uh, we've seen that. Uh, we've pushed back on that. But at the same time, I think it was, you know, one of a Chinese diplomat kind of responded to a lot of tweets coming out from our State Department. I can't breathe, you know, in a clear reference to you guys have got serious criminal justice issues right now. So who are you to talk to us about what's going on in Hong Kong? We can, you know, everyone's got facts of matter on this, but, you know, we're on a a mudslinging war, um, so to speak, you know, whether we're talking about Hong Kong or they're going to talk about our criminal justice system. And it's just our relations are just going to be completely severed. But it's a complete crash course, and I, I, it'll be interesting to see as we the pandemic continues to rage on if, if I think things are just only going to get worse. Uh, and speaking about only getting worse, now to bring things a little bit more domestic, we have seen that uh, a left-leaning think tank, Economic Policy Institute, came out with, uh, with a re- re- recent research study going over that uh, one in 10 Americans who are out of work may not get their job back. Uh, This may be because of uh, efficiencies that companies find, or it may also just be because there is just a true lack of demand that furloughs may become permanent layoffs. Drew, what's your take on where we stand with unemployment and Americans getting their jobs back? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of Americans who are now shifted into the permanent unemployment. Um, you know, they, they think that about 7 7.2% of the workforce right now has no hope of returning to their previous job. Uh, so we, we've gotten past the point of furlough that we're looking at a, you know, a permanent layoff. And then, and then there's a huge chunk of people who, who might get called, but probably won't as well. Um, so there's people, I mean, when we're looking at it, people with no chance or not really a reasonable chance that you know accounts that that equates to 17.6 million people across the country of getting their old jobs back. There is going to be a lot more talk of a second round of stimulus. Of course, the United States focused more on unemployment benefits, whereas you look at countries like United Kingdom, uh, which is really known as a nation of shopkeepers, they more or less you know subsidize payroll, right? So no one was really laid off in the first place, um, and and they. Kept payments going that way, um, you know, essentially paying out, you know, your, your, your pubs and your your bodegas and your groceries and everything else. Uh, so that I don't know if if we get into a second realm and if infections rise, whether we should look at something like that or whether we should look at, you know, 
pushing out unemployment uh, benefits. I don't know, but but another another round of stimulus is probably likely just a check in hand um, as as this thing is, it could get get worse or at least certainly stay flatter longer than than we anticipated. Well, and you're also seeing that a lot of these stimulus checks in the downturn, people are going to continue to save rather than spend. And so when there's not a demand for goods and services, a lot of with decreased demand that impacts companies bringing back furloughed workers. And therefore, that, that's actually a, a big cause of this. One thing to note is we are seeing that uh, black black workers are, are hit especially hard, especially and also Hispanic and Asian and black women are, have been hit the hardest is what this study says. Uh, so w- one thing to note there that we should mention. Also, if you're talking about continued stimulus, I, I took a stance a couple podcasts ago that I think this 600 weekly payment is uh, pretty horrific. I, I think that it should be a back to work bonus and they're continuing talks about bringing that back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it incentivizes Americans to to get back to the workforce because if you're getting an extra 600 bucks a week, uh, on top of what you normally would claim, there's really no incentive because people are making more money uh, sitting at home rather than looking for jobs and, and everything around that. So my thought would would be we definitely need another round of stimulus. But I, I do like maybe helping people with payroll or also uh, paying workers for uh, when they return back to work for the first couple months, they get a back to work bonus, something along those lines, I think would be great. So, so you, you would be receptive to nationalizing payroll as an option? I think it makes sense. I, I, I overall, I, I think that makes more sense than the 600 bucks a week yeah. for, because it's not incentivizing people. If I can make more money rather than I was making at my old job, what, what's going to incentivize me to do that? And so I think if, if we help with, maybe it's, you know, 45% of payroll or whatever the number is uh, on top of a back-to-work bonus. I think that's going to incentivize one company's hiring because if I have decreased demand, I can't afford payroll, right? So, I mean, that's a big piece that mm-hmm. we need to aspect because when, we when we're in a recession, demand drastically falls off. And so, therefore, if companies don't have the same revenue, they can't hire their workers back. Therefore, it's a perfect storm. So, uh, I, I would be for it. Yeah, I mean, it's... If you let the brick and mortar institution of itself collapse um, because the company's not or, you know, the small business is not being subsidized, uh, then then the worker is, you know, and is going to end up on the unemployment dole anyway. Well, and we're so, a service based industry. I mean, look, yeah. at, look what happened to our hospitality. And it, even we see uh, United Airlines, they may have come out and say they need if the demand doesn't change by October 1st, they're going to have to furlough or layoff. Uh, 36,000 people. I mean, that's a significant number. And so I think that there, if we are trying to have a V-shaped recovery, then I think it's needed. And, you know, I in another stimulus check, um, if if Congress decides to go with that option as well, uh, that, that might help with the, you know, what's going to inevitably be a growing number of bankruptcies. I mean, you saw the St. Louis Federal Reserve President James Bullard, you know, warned that, you know, there might be a growing number of bankruptcies due to the COVID outbreak. Um in particular, you know, you're looking at health policy and and medical bankruptcies and everything else. So as more people get infected, um, you know, you're you're just going to need more cash in hand to help pay with, you know, potential treatments or, or whatever comes with, with 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 your illness. Yeah, and I, it's to be expected, right? I mean, the bankruptcies come, but it was also interesting to look at the Fed's minutes. 
really emphasizing inflation that they're going to keep rates low until inflation may even pass their target. Inflation has been a really big problem uh, for how many years now? Uh, if it's not like it's ran, run rampant like the 70s and the 80s, even though we've been trying to hit our inflation goal and keep coming short. Drew, do you think inflation is still something that the Fed should be looking and, and tying all of these uh, policies to? Well, I think there might be an increased move to look at that as guidance as opposed to the combination of unemployment goals and inflation, um, namely because you saw unemployment at 3.5% and you had virtually no inflation. Um, and now we, and, and at the same time, we were still setting our, you know, our balance sheet on fire as well. So if that's not going to lead to inflation, you know, maybe they wait till it overshoots 2% and then, um, you know, then, then, then tell them keep rates towards zero. I don't, I, I, I think that, the barometer between unemployment and inflation, or I should say, I mean, the causal relationship, however you want to call it, is clearly broken down. So it's tough to evaluate something as a combination when you have 3.5% unemployment and muted inflation. That's that's very difficult when, you know, these things should be moving together. But. Right. Yeah. It's It's been kind of an anomaly compared to what we've seen historically. And uh, I, I personally don't think inflation is going to go, go up for for an extended period of time. So rates are probably going to stay low yeah. for a time being. Especially now that we're in a recession. Yep. So, um, yeah. But, you know, I, with, with that, is there anything else that we might have overlooked this week, Grant? Well, I think there's a couple of things to look for this week. Uh, we're seeing that the America's big banks, they're going to have their second quarter earnings this week. So uh, be really interesting to see what happens with uh, trading and fee income. A lot of the larger banks did make a significant amount of money for uh, helping or for processing the PPP loans. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Also, what the, what the happens with dividends, because we saw the Fed with the pressure there. So we'll see uh, Citi, JPM, and Wells tomorrow, Goldman Sachs on Wednesday, Bank of America, and Morgan Stanley on Thursday. Uh, the last thing to note is OPEC and Russia will be having a virtual meeting like everyone these days uh, on Wednesday. So expect to see a reverse of production cuts there. Um, but with the resurgence of Corona infections, that may impact the plans because if people go back into lockdown and travel begins to decrease and demand begins to increase, then we may have uh, a little deja vu moment. So uh those would be the two big things I'm looking at this week. What about you, Drew? Yeah, as we kind of brought up before, but I think it's a big deal. Um, you know, keep July 22nd on your calendar. See if Tesla can squeak, squeak into the S&P 500. I think that would be uh, massive. So, and it will be exciting to see if they have, you know, a fourth, fourth straight quarter of profits. Um, it, it's just a big deal in general, especially saw how they both upheld the NASDAQ today and then were the result of its subsequent, you know, uh, correction, just because it's it's really become one of the big big companies. Um, and you know that's that's pretty much it, guys. Uh, we were off a little bit over the fourth um, and the week, uh, so you know uh, it's good to be back, both back in Bozeman. Um, I think most likely, and we'll, we'll do a couple more, but in August we'll be taking a break, and then we'll come back in September uh, with season three. So be on the lookout for that. We'll, I'm sure we'll bring it up in the next couple of podcasts just to uh, just to kind of remind and inform our, our, our viewers 
Um, thanks again, as always, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.